Hello friends, I'm your host Melissa and first off I'm so sorry about the late episode. We had a very crazy week last week with holiday. Um, there was just a lot going on and then we this case actually turned out to be a lot bigger than I thought with a lot more information out there. Um, so I just wanted to make sure I had everything covered for you guys as well. Um, but I hope everyone had an awesome and safe 4th of July. I know summer is starting to kick off and we are starting to get into the like late 80s mid 90s over here in the pacific northwest um and i was actually over in sacramento for a day or so like the weekend before the fourth of july and i actually hit triple digits so that was cool um i hope everyone so i hope everyone is going to stay cool out there um, and be safe with the warmer weather and the temperatures rising um, for this week, this case I have for you is about a murder of a 16-year-old girl in Canada whose case actually went unsolved for nearly 50 years until DNA was linked in May of this year to a dead guy who was buried over 800 miles away in West Virginia. Welcome to our cruel reality, everyone. Sharon Kim Pryor was born in Montreal, Canada on February 9, 1959 to George and Yvonne Pryor. Yvonne was actually born in England but had migrated to Montreal when she was just a child. She had met George when he was a private in the Canadian Armed Forces and they had gotten married and had their first baby, Sharon. The day before Sharon's second birthday, her twin sisters were born, Maureen and Doreen, and Sharon was very excited when they were born and looked at their birth as her very own birthday present. George gets orders to move from Point St. Charles to Manitoba, and soon after their move, their last child was born, who was George Jr. and went by Jojo. In 1966, when Jojo was about two years old, um, George and Yvonne's marriage had actually started to get rocky and they ended up separating and Yvonne ended up moving back to Point St. Charles as a single mother of four children. In 1975, Sharon was 16 years old with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was described as happy, kind, reliable, athletic, creative, smart, and she had a huge love for animals and loved to take in strays and nurse them back to health and it even contributed to her wanting to become a veterinarian. She was also heavily involved in the Boys and Girls Club in her town, and she had played multiple sports. Sharon had went missing on an Easter weekend on Saturday, March 29th, 1975. And there had actually been a timeline put on a website her family made at SharonPrior.com of the whole day told in a perspective, a first person perspective of that, of Sharon herself. So I'm going to kind of go over that with you guys um, just to kind of show you how normal her day was, honestly. It, and it's just kind of, it. I mean, if anything, it's even more sad to just kind of see like how normal her day, like her whole day was and how this whole like thing just ends pretty much. Um, she had gotten up that morning, washed up, got dressed, and she had breakfast. Her mom had gone out to get stuff for Easter dinner and some chocolate eggs and goodies for the kids. Uh, Sharon and her younger brother had loved to search for eggs, but her twin sisters, who were 14 at the time, thought they were too old for that. And just to give a little bit of a background on her siblings, um, at the time, at this time, her siblings were her 14-year-old twin sisters and then her 11-year-old brother, Jojo. Um, and then they were also fostering a little four-year-old boy named Steven at the time. So, <clears throat> around 1 p.m., Sharon had decided to hard-boil eight eggs and let them sit to cool so she could paint them for the boys. 
Around 3 p.m., her mom had come home from shopping, and they and she had sat at the table with Sharon as she painted eggs. Sharon had been concerned with if the paint would dry by morning, and her mom had actually suggested that she paint half the eggs in egg cups and turn them turn them over and finish them later. Her mom um, absolutely loved Easter because it meant spring weather, the flowers were blooming, the birds were singing, um, children were out playing with bola bats and skipping rope. Um, which for those of you who don't know what bola bats are, because I was definitely one of them, so I had to Google it. Um, it was just another word, I guess is what they called them back then, with the paddle balls, with, with the ball attached by a string and you hit it with a wooden paddle. Um, I guess that's just what they called them back then. Um, so I did, but I did look it up and that is just what... That is just what she's referring to when she called them bullet bats. Um, but anyway, her mom had just gotten an overall funny bubbly f- kind of feeling when spring came along, and Sharon was actually felt that way as well. Around 3.45, Sharon had finished painting half of the Easter eggs and had told her mom she was going to go pick up her Leo's boy jacket. And like I had said, she was very active in the Boys and Girls Club, and a part of that was selling raffle tickets, which is how she got the jacket. And I'm just going to kind of go over like the background of leo's boys just because i had never heard of it before i read about this and i kind of just wanted to get some like history on it um but leo's boys is actually a bunch of different floor hockey teams that started out in 1952 um they started out with two teams with 30 boys and hit a peak of 110 teams with over 1,000 boys they played sports ranging from hockey baseball football and boxing Um, Everyone on their team had gotten a jacket, which was a green jacket with yellow writing on the front, which I actually have a picture of on our Instagram if you you just want to see what that looks like. thought it was kind of cool looking. Um, These jackets were never paid out, like, out of pocket. These kids got them from selling the raffle tickets and also going off on that all of the money that the that came from the boys and girls club like that they had received money from were fundraisers and donations the parents never paid out of pocket for things unless obviously it was a donation of some kind um it was founded in memory of joe mel's brother leo who had died at age 17 after battling leukemia joe and leo were teenagers when they started coaching a hockey team in the point made up of 11 year olds like I said, they started out with two teams with 30 boys. There were 11 children in the Mel's family, and their father had died from a stroke when Joe was just 11. While battling leukemia, Leo would spend most of the day in bed, but would somehow find the strength to get up for a couple hours to help his brother coach the hockey team, which won a city championship in their second year. Due to having a hard time watching his brother waste away, he volunteered to join the Canadian forces for the Korean War, which is where he was when Leo passed on March 16, 1951. Sharon had been going to the Boys and Girls Club since she was six years old, and that's where she had spent most of her time and felt like she really belonged there. She loved swimming, basketball, and floor hockey, and she had asked her mom if she could take Stephen with her, which was, again, the four-year-old that they were fostering at the time, to which her mom said yes, and off they went. When she had got to the club, they had actually told her that they didn't have her size in the jacket, but gave her a receipt so that she could pick it up another day. And just to give you kind of another idea of how sweet this girl was, she actually considered, um, she actually thought about ordering a smaller size for Steven because he didn't have a spring jacket. So if that doesn't tell you how sweet this girl was, I don't know what does, and it even gets better. So 
Um, around 4.15, they had gotten home and continued painting Easter eggs. At around 4.30, their family reverend dropped by to say hello and wish them a happy Easter and had brought a box of chocolate turtles. They had sat around the table while Sharon painted Easter eggs. And Sharon had asked Yvonne if there was a book they could read to Stephen about the Easter Bunny. But before Yvonne could respond, the Reverend had said, quote, Why don't you tell him how Easter really came about, Sharon? To which she smiled and said that she would. The Reverend had left as it was almost supper time. So Sharon's grandma, her mom, the twins, Jojo, Stephen, Doug, which was one of her mom's friends, and Sharon herself sat down to eat dinner, which was stew and something that the kids weren't very fond of, but they ate it anyways. After supper, Sharon washed the dishes while the twins dried, and after they were done, Sharon placed the Easter eggs carefully on a shelf so Stephen wouldn't get to them and break them. Between 6 and 7 p.m., Sharon's friend, who she's known since she was about five years old and lived right down the block from her, had come over to kind of keep her company as she got ready to go hang out at a local pizzeria called Marina's Pizzeria. And her friend actually wasn't going to go with her, as it sounds like they went to different high schools, so they didn't have like the same friend group and they didn't really run in the same social circles. Um, So they just kind of hung out with each other as Sharon got ready. Uh, They laughed and joked around with how many times Sharon had changed her top and kind of how many times she had like changed like looked in the mirror making sure how she looked and all that Um, and Sharon actually ended up wearing one of her mom's tops Uh, Marina's Pizzeria was about five blocks from uh, the family home and it was kind of just like a little local hangout where they like got a soft drink and they talked about high school girl stuff like boys what the latest music was etc etc Sharon had been worried about wearing her suede jacket um on her walk to the pizzeria just because it had been raining but her mom had told her that it would be fine and it was just drizzling so it wasn't enough to hurt the jacket she had told her mom goodbye her mom had said goodbye and to be careful as she always does with all of her kids and she had met her friend down at the sidewalk and her friend had asked her if she wanted her to walk with sharon to the pizzeria to which sharon had said no but thanks anyways and sharon walked across the street and they had went their own separate ways Sharon was also described as being, like, more of a cautious girl who didn't really, like, do anything bad, like, test her boundaries. Um, she had a really good relationship with her mom, so she would always, she was really good about, like, following rules and following curfew and all that, and most of the time she was usually home by 11, maybe 1 a.m. at the latest, um, so when Sharon did not come home the night on the 29th, she, it was obviously very concerning from her mother, um, that she had not come home she hadn't even called nothing like that she hadn't heard from Sharon at all since she had left so being that her mom and her twin sisters actually stayed up till around 1 30 that night waiting for her her twin sisters had watched from upstairs while her mom from downstairs obviously when a teenager goes missing um the first thing that people think of is maybe she was a runaway um but reading about sharon and the kind of person that she was and reading about her and yvonne's relationship i honestly just don't even think a runaway was very realistic in this case just because i I mean she was a very sweet girl and she had every intention of just going to the pizzeria and hanging out with some friends and coming home um, especially because she was looking forward to Easter dinner the next day. Um, so, I mean, like, she had things to look forward to. She had a great relationship with her mom and her siblings, and she had great friends. So, I just, I really don't think that 
in this predicament that a runaway is very accurate. They also had found her bus pass and her, some money in her room. So, like, again, she, like, did not bring anything with her that would indicate that she would run away either. So, I mean, I guess, obviously, police, I'm sure, thought that she was a runaway being in the 70s and that she was a teenager. But in this case, I just don't think that her being a runaway is very accurate. Sharon had never made it to the pizzeria, and her friends had actually assumed that she met up with her boyfriend John at the time um, to go to a hockey game at the Montreal Forum along with some other guys. Um, but when the guys showed up at the pizzeria, Sharon wasn't with them, and they hadn't even heard from Sharon also. Sometime later, one of Sharon's friends, Mary, had actually called Yvonne to tell her that a woman had been attacked in the neighborhood um, the night before around 7 p.m. around where Sharon would have been walking. The attacker was scared off by a passerby and had actually run off down an alleyway. Obviously, this had worried Yvonne, especially because obviously Sharon was still missing. Um, they didn't have any new leads on to where she had gone or what had happened to her. So Yvonne had actually been seen on TV pleading for any information for her daughter to be found or, you know, as to what had happened to her. With Sharon missing for a couple days, the community had been very fearful about her disappearance and her mother, Yvonne, had even called around to some friends um, or anyone who even knew Sharon to see if they had heard from her or seen from her um, since she had disappeared. And even some of Sharon's classmates had actually volunteered to help search the local area along with police. Yvonne had told the producer of the Crave TV series that a few days later she had heard someone knocking on her neighbor's door who lived right across the street and he had a newspaper under his arm. It had been 6 a.m. and Yvonne had called out to him through the upstairs window asking Ronnie, why are you up so early? All he responded with was nothing, Yvonne, just nothing. He had kept knocking and she had a gut feeling that something was wrong, so she had run downstairs and outside and Ronnie had met her out on the street. And when they had got close enough to each other, Yvonne had actually ripped the newspaper out from under his arm and bolted back to the house and upstairs and had recalled Ronnie yelling after her not to look at the newspaper. When she had opened the newspaper, she had saw a picture of her daughter. And she knew it was her daughter just based off of her shoes. The picture that she was looking at was of the body that was found in a snow-covered field. And she had called the sheriff's office to confirm what she had seen. She had actually had to have her brother go down there and identify the body because of how distraught she was. And it did turn out to be Sharon. I don't really blame her for being, like, just hysterical and distraught and all that. Because I feel like if any of us found our, like, found out our child had been murdered the way that she did. And I will have a picture of, like, the one that they used in the newspaper. It's not very graphic. It doesn't really show anything. I mean, you can see a body, but it's like you can't really see much else. So I will kind of... I will put that in the Instagram post for this case um, and just to kind of show you like what Yvonne had seen and kind of seen it from her perspective and just to keep in mind, this is literally how she found out about her daughter. The police never got contacted her. I mean, she literally had to find out by a newspaper and she herself had to contact the police. So I feel like being able to look at the photo and kind of seeing it from Yvonne's perspective kind of helps you like figure out like how just messed up this case had started and like how messed up it was to for Yvonne I mean props to her because if I like being a mother myself I don't think I would ever be okay with finding out that my 
child was killed and found and it was posted in the newspaper and I wasn't even known about it like I wasn't even contacted or anything like that like I feel like even if they didn't know who it was that they would have at least warned Yvonne and been like knowing that they found a body like and if it matched the description of Sharon like giving her a warning before posting it in a newspaper because if any of us found out that our kid was murdered and their body was found via a newspaper and the police didn't have the decency to actually tell me themselves before posting it I feel like that's just very messed up and I being back in the 70s I just feel like that's just really a messed up way to go about it but anyways her body had been found on Tuesday, April 1st at 9 p.m. by a beekeeper in a Lingale field when he noticed that the gate had been open when it was supposed to be padlocked shut. I'm actually going to give a little bit of a warning. Um, the next part isn't too graphic. It's just like how her body was found and like the evidence like around her body. Um, but when I get into her autopsy, that's when it gets a little bit more graphic, just the way that her the condition of her body was in. Um, and kind of just like going over all of her injuries and stuff like that. So that one will be a little bit more graphic. And I will give a, another warning before I go into that. Um, but if you don't want to hear any of it, you can just skip forward. She was found naked from the waist down wearing only her suede coat, her sweater, and shoes and socks. And her pants had actually been found next to her. But her underwear had actually been found hanging from a nearby tree branch. Two of the police officers had actually thought that... The person who had killed Sharon actually, like, drove out there, dumped her, and then went back to the vehicle to grab her pants and underwear. As, like I said, they were dumped after the fact, and the pants were found next to her while the underwear was found on a tree branch nearby. Other evidence found at the scene were tire marks, an eight-and-a-half-foot size boot print, and a dress shirt that was actually used to tie up Sharon that had a size 17 collar and 34-inch sleeves. They also found some chewed-up tape in her hair that was, um guess to be used as like kind of like a gag um they were able to create like a tentative profile of the killer um saying that he was about six foot tall and 200 pounds based off the evidence found at the scene and just another warning before i talk about her autopsy um in case anyone wants to skip forward the next like maybe 30 seconds or so um her autopsy revealed that she had been raped and then asphyxiated her body was covered in bruises she had two jaw fractures on both sides of her mouth she had a broken nose and a hole in one of her cheeks likely caused when one of her teeth became loose during the struggle. She had blood in her lungs and had hemorrhage blood from internal injuries sustained from an, an attack from her attacker kneeling on her chest. And if that wasn't worse enough, it was determined that she was actually still alive when she was dumped as she had been clutching a tree branch. So if it wasn't bad enough that she I'm like that she had went through so much of that she was just left out in a snow field by herself i just i can't imagine i mean knowing like i just i don't know i don't even have words just because it's like it's undescribable um they had believed that her killer was actually from the area or at least familiar with the local area as he they believe that the killer chose that field because he wouldn't be like it wouldn't be used by the local beekeeper until the late spring so and that he had possibly thought that her body would remain in the frozen field for weeks if not months without being found 
Authorities had even believed that two people could have been involved in Sharon's murder just based off the fact that there was a trail of blood leading from the tire tracks to where her body was dumped. And it was about 15 feet distance from there to where her body was dumped. And there was no mud found on Sharon's shoes, which would have meant that she was carried. Um, I don't know how much she would have weighed at the time, but I can't imagine that she, she looked pretty small. So I can't imagine that she weighed so much that it would have taken two people to carry her. Um, but I, I mean, obviously I guess it could have just been like a theory based off that fact alone. Um, but spoiler alert, it was not two people. It was just one, (laughs) but, um, I just thought I would kind of throw that in there just based off the fact that she didn't have any mud on her shoes, which meant she didn't walk and that she was carried. Um, and that it was about a 15 foot distance from the tire tracks to where her body was found. Sharon had been laid to rest in Quebec with over 200 people, including family, friends, and classmates attending her funeral, which was held at St. Matthew's Presbyterian Church. There were a few theories as to what could have happened to Sharon, and I'm, I am going to share them with you. Um, but I do feel like a couple of them are kind of like a long stretch, but of course they are just theory. So they were just kind of trying to cover all of their bases as to what could have happened. Um, but I will, sh- I'm going to share all of them with you. So one of the theories was, is that she had gotten a ride from someone on her way to the pizzeria and then was attacked and left in the field. Um, this one, I feel like, I mean, it's a possibility obviously, but I feel like if she wanted a ride, she would have asked her mom. Um, just because, I mean, and it's also a possibility that she left and someone had offered her a ride and she, I mean, she changed her mind and she thought that was a good idea because it was raining. But then again, I don't think it was raining too much to the point where she would need a ride. And like I said, she was a very cautious girl. Um, and if it was someone that she didn't know, I feel like she definitely wouldn't have accepted that ride. But if someone, if it was someone that she did know, then that's a very more of a high possibility but like I said I don't think that she would have accepted a ride regardless just because it wasn't that far and it I mean if she wanted a ride I feel like she would have just asked someone for a ride trucker passing through the area was another one um but like I had said and like the police believed that it was someone that was from the area or even a local in the area and I feel like a trucker is kind of more of a long shot because truckers aren't usually from the area. They're normally just passing through. And the chances of it being a trucker that is a local is very, I mean, I guess it's a possibility. But I feel like, again, it's just more of a stretch. Um, another one is someone took her, held her captive for three days before killing her, and then disposed of her body. That one, I feel like is more spot on because I believe I had read something that actually said that her time of death was actually the day that she was found. And then a little later on, I will talk about a garage that they, that police had gotten a tip for, um, that they believe that she was held captive in. So I do believe that one is a high possibility because like I said, she'd been missing for, from March 29th, April 1st, and she wasn't found until late at night on April 1st so I mean that was more of a possibility another one is a serial killer um, just because there had been a great deal of unsolved murders in the Quebec area during this time and many other female victims um, who had had a similar appearance to Sharon um, again kind of a long stretch but I mean these are just theories so of course some of them are kind of be kind of out there but some of them you know are actually probably more on the realistic side of what happened so 
I mean, but I just feel like, in my opinion, that someone did take her, held her captive before killing her and disposed of her body. I feel like that one is more of what happened just because of the fact that I feel like her body would have been in worse condition if she had been killed the day that she was abducted, that kind of thing, regardless, like, you know. So, I don't know. These are just theories. Um, but Sharon's death was very difficult on her family, as you could imagine. Yvonne had to actually be put on prescribed sedatives to calm her down after learning about her daughter's murder, which I honestly don't blame her, because if I had found out about my child's murder through a newspaper and no one had the dignity to actually tell me and, you know, to find out how she died and how brutal she had died, like... I can't, I mean, you can't really blame her for being as hysterical and, you know, broken as Yvonne was. I mean, she is a very strong, I mean, honestly, she probably handled it a lot better than I, like, I probably would have or any of us probably would have because it's like, I can't imagine, you know, finding out your daughter was murdered through a newspaper and then, you know, eventually finding out how brutal her murder was because i'm sure it was published somewhere obviously that's how we have it now but it's like can you i don't know how anyone can imagine dealing with it it's just it would be very hard when reporters had tried to reach out to yvonne for comment she had sent one of her friends to the door with a written message that said quote just tell all mothers to watch their daughters and to love them Police had been concerned that Sharon's murder had actually been possibly related to the death of some other local girls. Uh, there was Norma O'Brien, who was 12 years old, and she was murdered in Chattagay the summer before. And she had been found in a field near her home, and she was sexually assaulted with her body mutilated and like Sharon had been asphyxiated. Um, Chattagay is also only like 30, 40 minutes away from where Sharon was murdered, so I mean, it's a possibility. Um, another one was Debbie Fisher, who was 14 years old and disappeared a year after Norma. And she had actually gone missing after beginning a 10-minute bike ride from her uncle's house to her family's house. And it actually disappeared less than 10 minutes away from where Norma had disappeared from. Um, but she was actually found in an abandoned car in the woods and she was beaten over the head with a rock. So it's a little bit different. Um, and they were actually able to arrest someone for Debbie Fisher's murder, and the killer was a minor, so, and they were just a few old, years older. So there had actually been a publication ban preventing the public from learning their name, and they were referred to as MX. Um, they, he, she did not, I mean, did their time and then was later released from prison. I never found any, I did not find anything. Um, like, because I'm sure they're not, obviously they're not a minor anymore, so, but I did not find anything on to, like, what their name is now that they're not a minor, because I'm, I'm sure that since the crime was committed when they were minor, that it's all just gonna be, you know, hidden information anyways. Um, during the first year of the investigation, the authorities had questioned 38 people, which six of them were actually considered prime suspects. Uh, police had asked help from the public as they believed that someone from the community knew pertinent information in Sharon's murder. Fast forward 29 years, um, there was actually a break in the case. In 2004, the authorities received a tip that resulted in both the Montreal police and the Lingale police to begin searching that garage I was talking about a little earlier that was located behind an apartment building. Um, they were looking for DNA evidence or traces of blood that could have helped them identify Sharon's killer. 
Uh, they believed that Sharon had been likely held captive in this garage from the day that she disappeared on March 29th to April 1st. And it was also just a few streets away from the prior family home. There had been two dozen police officers that spent more than 15 hours searching this garage for any evidence. And no, they did not have any suspect in mind um, when they searched the garage. And they did not believe that anyone, like any of the current residents or past residents of the building were in any way involved in Sharon's murder. Uh, during their investigation, the Lingale police were actually able to collect three DNA samples from the garage and they had compared them, like they had sent them out for analysis and they compared them to the dozens of DNA samples taken from potential suspects in the case, but unfortunately they all came back negative and nobody was arrested for Sharon's murder. Now, if I was covering this case a couple years ago, that's actually where it would have ended. But last year in 2022, a suspect named Franklin Maywood Romine came up into their investigation when a DNA profile removed from the shirt used to restrain Sharon and a sample from her pants and underwear made it possible to target the last name of the suspect. They got his last name and started looking into criminal records, which came back to him being very active in Canada and Montreal in the 70s with violent activities and being in and out of jail. Once they had started looking into his records, they had found out that he had broken into, beat, and raped a girl in Parkersburg, and he was convicted but released on a $2,500 bond two months later and had fled to Canada, where Sharon Pryor was killed a year later. He had a criminal record that started when he was a child, and in 1964, when he was 18, he made his first attempted escape from the West Virginia Penitentiary and had been in and out of jail before his next escape from prison in 1967, to which two years later he would start committing crimes in Canada. He was incarcerated so much that they used it to track his location because they could see if he was in West Virginia or Canada, or whether he was even in jail or out on the streets, to which he was out on the streets when Sharon was killed. Canadian Borders officials captured him in October of 1975 and turned him over to the FBI, then extradited back to West Virginia in January of 1976 to face the rape in Parkersburg. He was initially convicted during a trial for the rape and burglary, but the West Virginia Supreme Court had reversed the conviction and awarded him a new trial. In 1981, Romine pleaded guilty to second-degree sexual assault in exchange for the burglary charge to be dismissed. He was sentenced to 5 to 10 years in prison, but was released soon after due to credit of time served. By 1982, he was back in Canada, where he had died in Verdun, Montreal, at the age of 36. How he died is actually a mystery, as there is no death certificate and there is no record of his death, but detectives had believed that his death was quote-unquote violent. His body was returned to his mother in West Virginia, where his family had buried him at the Pine Grove Cemetery. Detective Eric Rassico with the Langway Police Department believed that there was enough to persuade a judge in West Virginia to allow Romine's body to be exhumed to prove that he was the killer. He was ready to lay the years of investigation of the case on the table and on record for the first time in hopes that Putnam County Circuit Court Judge Philip Stowers would agree that an exhumation was the only way to close the case. For nearly an hour, Detective Rassico had testified virtually about the facts of the case. He had told the court about a 22-year-old woman named Cheryl Roy that was nearly abducted at Knife Point in the same area and around the same time that Pryor would have been walking to the pizzeria. 
He had said that the suspect told her in English not to scream and to follow him. He also told her when she fought back, quote, you bitch, you're coming with me. That is an important fact since the official language in Montreal was and still is French. Roy had given a description to the police that the English-speaking man was white, late 20s, and was about 6 foot 2 inches tall and weighed about 200 pounds. He had brown hair, a mustache, and was wearing a blue ski coat. Detective Rassico had said the description matched Romine's at the time. He had also testified that the footprint found at the crime scene would have matched Romine's suspected shoe size. He also told the court about the tire marks that were found in the snow-covered field where Sharon was found and determined that that type of tire would have been one used on 37 models in 1975, to which one of those models was a Wrangler, to which was the same type of car Romine had bought from a woman who lived in Sharon's neighborhood, who was only two blocks from her house. Noah and Michael Romine, two of Romine's surviving brothers, had voluntarily gave their DNA samples to police in December of 2022. Court documents had stated, quote, The comparison of the profiles showed several similarities between the profiles of Noah and Michael and the suspect's profile that was also linked to the blue shirt sample of the victims and from the samples taken from the victim's pants and panties. The results showed that it is 140 million times more likely to come from the brother of Noah and Michael Romine than any other random person in the Caucasian population, end quote. Detective Rassico had testified that, in other words, the profile of the killer obtained in the, on the blue shirt comes from the brother of Noah and Michael Romine, but it is not one of them. I will also have a link in our show notes um, to show the video of the detective testifying for Sharon's case as well if anyone would like to watch and it will be in the show notes for this episode. One of the brothers spontaneously told Huntington police who were taking the DNA sample from him that Romine probably did murder prior. The brother had also told the detectives that Romine had tried to rape his wife while he was serving in the U.S. Marines. When it came to digging up their brother's body, the siblings did not agree. They had sent a letter to the court protesting that the exhumation of his remains. The statement from the letter, which I will have a picture of as well in our Instagram post for this case, said, quote, We were told that the family of the victim wants closure. We completely understand and have deepest sympathy for the family. However, we fail to understand why this is necessary as we're told that if we do exhume him, there might not be enough DNA to prove anything. The siblings also said that it would be impossible to exhume Romine's body without disturbing their mother's, who is buried directly beside him. We are willing to stipulate that our brother is guilty of this crime, and you can inform the family that he did it and has been dead since 1982. Detective Rassico was clear to the court that he did not wish to cause any harm to Romine's surviving family. He had said, quote, That's why we want to get a DNA of Franklin Romine on his burial site. We don't want to cause any prejudice against the Romine family. We only want to ease the pain of the victim's family. We think the only way to do that is by opening the casket of Franklin Romine to get his DNA and confirm once and for all that he is the killer of Sharon Pryor. Judge Sowers had agreed. He had said, quote, They have, in fact, very narrowly, before they took such a step to exhume a body, have meticulously decided in investigating the murder of Sharon Pryor that they've developed DNA evidence, they've developed location information, they've developed automobile information, body and build information relating to the decedent. 
The court believes that given that, that there is sufficient cause here to order that the body be exhumed and that information for DNA purposes that needs to be retrieved will be permitted. I will also have a link to his um, ruling in the show notes for this episode as well. A little more than three weeks after Stowers' crucial ruling, it was exhumation day on May 2nd of this year. Linguay Police, along with members of the FBI, West Virginia State Police, and Putnam County Sheriff's Office, met at the cemetery to begin the exhumation with the help of a local funeral home. After hours of digging with an excavator, Cruz had reached Romine's casket that laid inside a steel vault. It had filled with water, which was pumped out of the grave to allow investigators to use a ladder to climb inside and open the vault. The Putnam County prosecuting attorney had said that he can't be absolutely sure that a good DNA profile will be obtained from the exhumation, but he thinks, quote, there's a good likelihood. Several bones and other evidence were retrieved from the casket and placed into Lungway police evidence bags that were taken back to Canada to be tested in an effort to make the definite match to remind. Judge Stowers was very clear in his ruling that the disturbed area at the cemetery was to be returned to its previous condition. All the evidence retrieved during the exhumation had been sent to the lab for testing and results were expected within two weeks. When the DNA had come back, it was confirmed that it was a match for the DNA left at the scene and that Franklin Romine was the killer that had kidnapped and killed 16-year-old Sharon Pryor. Pryor's two younger sisters, Doreen and Maureen, had grew emotional as they described Sharon at a news conference. They had thanked the Point St. Charles for their support over the years and all the law enforcement involved in Canada and the USA, and they had went on to talk about their beloved Sharon. Lastly, to Sharon, our angel. Thank you for being our daughter and big sister. We'll always be your mom, your little brother, and sisters who sat looking out that window that Easter weekend, hoping to see you walking on home. (laughs) You may never have come back to our house on Congregation Street that weekend, but you have never left our hearts, and you never will. We love you, Sharon, now. May you truly rest in peace. Thank you. That is all I have for you today. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I will be updating my show to have new episodes every other week as I do work full time and I do work solo on these podcasts, but I'm hoping eventually I'll be able to change it to every week and it also depends on the case as well. So there may be sometimes I do have an episode on an off week. So please follow my show on Apple or Spotify and please follow our Instagram at Corality underscore podcast as if anyone has any cases they would like me to cover you can message me on there i hope everyone has a great weekend and i will see you next time